Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Good morning. Uh, it's customary in our Anglican tradition to always have uh, a reading from the Old Testament, a psalm, a reading from the, the New Testament, and then a reading from the Gospels. And you might notice today that we had two New Testament passages, and I'm really sorry. Uh, I won't tell our bishop if you don't. Uh, the reason I did that is because I wanted to get these couple passages in there so bad for us to read, but we still had a psalm. And so if you notice and you're like, why didn't we read an Old Testament passage? I'm sorry. Uh, it's, I love the Old Testament. It's not because of that. Oh, thank you. All right. We pray that you would just open up this story for us this morning. Um, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take on more flesh to us in a relationship with us, Lord. Teach us that you think about us and love us the same way that you love Paul. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, as we've journeyed through the Gospels and the book of Acts, we've encountered a lot of people that I have just grown to love and been so moved by in so many different ways. My time with Mary, just studying the life of Mary in Advent, just wrecked me. And Peter, sweet Peter, I felt like journeying through the Gospel of Luke, I just love him so much more. And in Acts, there's so many other people. But now we get to Paul. And up until this point, Paul's really nowhere, but he's about to take center stage because the Gospel, uh, the Holy Spirit's about to just break out the Gospel in the Gentile world. And it's this huge historic moment. But before God does that, he has to polish his chosen instrument for that task, which is Paul of Tarsus, the apostle to the Gentiles. Because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, there are things about his story that are very unique. Uh, but what has struck me so much this week are the things that are relatable, uh, that are true to all human beings in his story. So the main thing I want to do this morning is kind of take Paul out of stained glass a little bit, out of like abstract theological Bible world and see him as a real person. And I think in his story, there are so many things that Jesus wants to teach us about who he is, uh, who we are, about the church, so many things. Paul's not in stained glass in our, our cathedral here, but, you know, maybe one day. Uh, if you flip to your sermon page, we're going to break up his story into three stages. Uh, Saul before his conversion, his conversion itself, and Paul after his conversion. And uh, if you're not too familiar with the Bible or the New Testament, he's Saul before he's converted, and he gets a new name, Paul. So it's not two people, it's the same person, um, but it's cool. Acts, for Acts 9, our, our main reading that Michelle read, we'll be diving into for the conversion, but I'll be dipping into some of his other writings for his life before and after. Sound good? Okay, Saul before his conversion. I have two blanks for you there, and if you're a note taker, uh, these are weird points. They don't rhyme and they're not alliterative at all, but here's my first one. In the first blank, advancing and brutish. Advancing and brutish, comma, second blank, pricked in heart. Pricked in heart. Advancing and brutish and pricked in heart. People have called you that all the time before, right? You know what I feel like you are? You're advancing and brutish and pricked in heart. <laughs> Let me explain. Before his conversion, Paul is different than a lot of other saints in the Bible. He's not a poor, simple, humble Jewish person which is what Mary and Peter are, right? Uneducated, fishermen, uh, 
not Paul. He's brilliant. He's educated. He's from an important city, which he even brags about at one point. He's a Roman citizen. He's also not an outsider like the Ethiopian eunuch was, which we read last week. He's like at the center of the Jewish bullseye. Listen to the, this from Philippians 3. This is him describing his, his insiderness. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that means like bragging about being a Jew. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's like if you were going to brag for some reason about your like Madison, Wisconsin street cred being like, I grew up on a fifth-generation Norwegian Dane County farm. I went to West, then I went to UW. I serve on the city council in Madison. I've never missed a meeting. I eat that spicy cheese bread for breakfast that they serve at the state fair stuff. I don't know if you better do that, but that's what he's getting at. But not only was he on the inside, he was this brilliant up-and-coming guy. In Galatians 1, he says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Um, some of you may have seen or listened to Hamilton, the really famous musical, or you just know a lot about Alexander Hamilton, the guy. You'll know that his story is one of somebody starting at the bottom and like working and writing his way to the top. And that is Paul. Paul is not throwing away his shot, right? He is... He is young, he's scrappy, he's hungry. That should be the picture in your mind of Paul of Tarsus. He's a beast. So he's this sharp, ambitious guy. He's eager to please the cultural, social, political, religious elite. He will check every box you give him and he'll stay up late doing it. He's the guy in your class that you hate, okay? But alongside that, the other quality that we see in his early life is a savageness, a brutishness. Um, in Paul's world, you could score political, religious points and move up in the world by showing that you hated your enemies more than the next guy. Uh, and we get this because, sadly, it's always been true, and it's still true in our world. On the right and left, you earn points by showing how much you hate the other side, right? In a weird way, today, we virtue signal by slandering people, which is interesting. It was the same for him. And in Paul's day and age, the cool thing to hate was Christianity. So he put as much energy, notice he bragged about it, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He's like, that was a mark of pride for me. It was his passion, it was good for his career, he got famous for it. And it's interesting, all the language used for him in relationship to the church is animalistic. Uh, so in Acts 3, Acts 8.3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church, dragging men and women off to prison. And that word ravage is used elsewhere to describe a bull trampling out a vineyard. So think of this mean, gnarly animal just like shredding up your garden. That's Paul. Likewise, the first verse in our reading today in Acts says that he's still breathing out threats and murder. Did you catch that? That's an insane way to describe somebody. But that is an image of like a bull panting and snorting before he runs you down. And that is Saul before his conversion. He's a ravenous wolf. He's a trampling bull. I took that word brutish in your notes from Psalm 73. I don't know if you noticed that in the psalm this morning. Uh, I find Psalm 73 to have remarkable parallels to Paul's life. But it says, the psalmist does, I was brutish and ignorant towards you like a beast before you. Now, when you put those two qualities together, 
extreme giftedness and intellectual prowess and brutish zeal, they pair together like gunpowder and fire. Think about a picture of this guy. Paul's more educated than you. He can out-argue you, right? You're not going to beat him in a like rhetorical Greek philosophy match. He's got you. You're not going to beat him in like religious world because he, he's way more religious than you. He's never skipped anything. And he's this savage, trampling bull, breathing out threats. He's like got the zeal and physicality to take you down. And he wants to take you down. And in his world, the more that he comes after you, the more that he'll be promoted. Isn't that terrifying? You, you see from Ananias, everybody knew who he was, even in a different city, right? Saul wasn't from Damascus. Damascus is like 150 miles away from Jerusalem. So even Christians there were like, that dude's crazy. He was infamous. But there's something else going on in Paul during his early years. Um, and this is something I'd never really meditated on before. Underneath the brilliant, violent surface, there's this internal unrest happening in Paul. He's advancing in brutish, but he's also pricked in heart. When Paul would later retell his conversion story in Acts 28, or sorry, Acts 26, he says that when he met Jesus and fell to the ground, he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then it says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? Um, a goad was a long pointed stick, which used to be translated as prick, which a driver of oxen would use to prick an obstinate animal, usually an ox, to get to do something. Okay, so think like a whip or a thing. I know that sounds harsh, but it's the ancient world and ox are doing stuff, so whatever, it's a goad, okay? To kick against the goads, therefore, is a picture of an ox being obstinate and kicking back when he's poked. So that's the image. And here's what it tells us about Paul. Jesus had been working on Paul for a while. In the middle of all his brutish, savage activism, God had been nudging him. He'd been slowly dismantling his confidence. He'd been pricking him in his conscience. I love Psalm 73. It says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. You see both of those things there. Paul was resisting it. Now, how might Jesus have been nudging him and pricking him? I think this is really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of really solid scholars who see Paul and Jesus being about the same age. And even though they were from different places, Jews all came together at the feast in Jerusalem when they would celebrate the great feast. And so there's a very good possibility that Jesus and Paul would have crossed paths while they were both growing up. How's that to try to imagine? They were both devout, so they could have been at the synagogue. There's a good chance Paul even could have seen Jesus teach. You know what it's like for two people who are advancing in a certain world. You know about each other and you're coming up, so he could have known about Jesus. At very least, he had heard about him, right? Because Jesus was famous. But we know for sure that Paul was there when Stephen was martyred. So we, he would have heard Stephen's amazing, sharp-edged, biblically spot-on defense for Jesus being the Messiah. And Paul was there. He heard it. Paul also, I think, would have experienced the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Jesus on his disciples as he was persecuting them and dragging them away. 
right? He saw Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, forgive the people who were killing him. Can you imagine seeing that and that not affecting you in some way? Paul was one of those people. So I think the Spirit used these things as pricks for Paul. I think they gnawed on his mind. You can imagine him starting to doubt his own certainty, kind of repressing his conscience and being like, ah, kicking against the goats every time he feels it, shaking it off, trying to shut off whatever was happening in his mind or his heart as he was thinking about the gospel. So maybe he was thinking deep down, Jesus is actually really beautiful and I'm drawn to him. But I imagine he didn't allow himself to even process it because of what it would have cost him, right? He's the rising star. For, for him to even entertain Jesus would have cost him everything. Social capital, career, everything would have been gone. So like a, a bull, he feels these pricks, but he digs in. He didn't even ask for it to happen. He was probably fine beforehand, but he was just feeling it, and he digs in, and he gets angrier, oh, like an ox. Quit poking me. <laughs> do you relate to this? I do. I've been in a season where God has been pruning me. Uh, and before I started getting pricked, I was fine. <laughs> I didn't ask for anything. I didn't need anything. But then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit started unsettling in me in ways that I didn't ask for. He started shining lights on things I didn't even know I needed light shined on. And at first, I resisted it. I even got more eloquent and more like pious and upright in other areas because we do that when we overcompensate, when our conscience is convicted but I couldn't suppress it. I couldn't get rid of it. And to use Jesus's phrase, it was hard work kicking against the goats. <laughs> it was hard for me to compete with what the Holy Spirit was doing in my soul. If you're here this morning and you've not committed to following Jesus, maybe you're feeling a holy unsettledness. Your life, your life might be great as it is, totally fine, but you might not be able to shake some nagging allure to the beauty of Jesus. If you're here like me and you're a Christian, maybe you're experiencing some similar things with something in your life. This is just something beautiful that God does to us. You feel he wants to liberate you, but in order to get there, sometimes he makes you uncomfortable first. You feel pricks, you feel nags, you feel him tugging on you could be a heart position, sin pattern, beliefs you're clinging on to that God is just slowly chipping at. It's hard to kick against the goads. It's useless resisting. Do you know why Jesus does this to us? Why he did it to Paul? Why he does it to each of us? Because he wants us. Amen? Because he wants you. And he wants to liberate you. He doesn't want you to stay there, even if you're enjoying it. So he nudges at you. He pricks you. I'm amazed that Jesus wanted Paul. And all his cocksure, brilliance, and violence, Jesus wanted him. So Jesus begins this siege warfare against his soul. He starts moving these chess pieces in his life until he can checkmate against him. Okay? Now let's turn to his conversion. Acts 9, I want you to go there. We're going to read it. Acts 9, verse 1, and I'll let you guys get there. 
You guys good? Verse one, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see that activism there. He's like, I want to get on top of things. There could be people we haven't persecuted yet in Damascus. Can I volunteer to do that? Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, the conversion. Here's my two points for the blanks in the conversion bit. First was advanced and brutish, pricked in heart. The first uh, blank under the conversion is seized by Christ. Seized by Christ. And the next blank after the comma is received by the church. Seized by Christ, received by the church. Paul's walking along the road. He's persecuting Christians. He's suppressing his conscience. When all of a sudden, Jesus literally knocks him down with light, blinds, blinds him, and calls him out by name. Some amazing paintings of this moment throughout history. Caravaggio, I think, is the really famous one. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus grabbed hold of him, and the word he uses is almost like arrest or being seized. So there's an irony in this story that Paul is going to arrest Christians and drag them off, and Jesus seizes Paul. He gives him a huge lock, bear hug. He grabs him. And this is the moment in the siege where Jesus basically busts down the front door of his soul, okay? What do we love about Jesus in this passage? I love asking that question sometimes when you're reading the Bible. We've done that before. I love that Jesus does for Paul what he was never planning on doing. You guys see that here? Paul didn't make a decision to follow Jesus. Jesus intervened in his life. I think Paul would have violently advanced his way all the way to hell if Jesus had not let him. But Jesus got in the way. He grabs him. He brought him to a place where his pride was loosened and he gives it up. I love and I'm blown away by how compassionate Jesus is towards Paul. Think about it. Think about what this guy has done, right? When Paul is groveling on the ground, if I were Jesus, I would have been tempted to say, like, you arrogant, violent, pharisaical scoundrel. Do you know what I could do to you? Do you know how much wrath you've been storing up for yourself by persecuting the church, right? But Jesus' tone is so personal and it's so tender. What does he say? Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? It's almost like a parent watching a child make a bad decision and out of love saying like, why are you doing this? I love even when he talks about kicking against the goads in Acts 26, he doesn't say, I can't believe you're doing this to me and resisting everything I'm doing towards you. You don't know how hard this is making it for me. No, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. He's looking at Paul and he's seeing him trying to resist what God is doing and he's torturing himself and Jesus is having utter compassion on him. Why are you doing this? 
I also love the authority of Jesus here. Remember, Paul is like this boss man, kind of super intense guy. And he just falls on the ground and asks, who are you? Jesus says, I'm Jesus. Now get up and go do this. And Paul silently and immediately obeys. It's like done, match over. One of the things I've been thinking about this week is that Jesus is the hero of Paul's story. Jesus is the hero of Paul's story. He's the hero because when Paul was so unlovely and unwantable, Jesus wanted him. He loved him. Even so, he's the hero because even when Paul kept resisting and persecuting Jesus, Jesus kept on moving towards him, not away from him. Have you ever been hard it is to keep on moving towards them? And somebody is mistreating you in some ways, and you know how hard it is to keep on moving towards them? Do you see how Jesus is just unconditionally coming for Paul? Isn't that amazing? And he's the hero because he's the reason Paul became who he was. He's the reason Paul did everything he did. He was just an instrument in the hand of Jesus. And I think for us, that idea that Jesus is the hero of our story is one of the great milestones of Christian maturity. Is whether you and I come to the point of knowing who's the hero in my story, it's Jesus. It's that Holy Spirit awareness of knowing like Paul, you once were unlovely when Jesus loved you anyways. And it's knowing how much Jesus has done for you. Have you ever been around somebody who knows that Jesus is the hero of their story? They're so lovely to be around. I think sometimes even Christians don't get that. I know lots of really big pastors who really don't understand that Jesus is the hero of the story. Some of us still think, actually, God is pretty, must be pleased to have me on his team because I'm amazing, you know? Paul probably used to think that, but not afterwards. In every single letter, you hear him saying, God showed me love when I did not deserve it, right? The Pharisees did not get that. They thought they were pretty amazing and God should be happy to have them on their team. So think about this with me for a second. This is one of the, the, the points that I think really comes at me from this. Is it possible that Jesus wants you as much as he wanted Paul? I think it is, right? Is it possible that what you think is freedom right now is actually slavery and Jesus wants to bust down your door and liberate you? Is it possible that he has the power to do that? I think it is. Listen to this from 1 Timothy. This is Paul talking about all this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. It's interesting how maybe you would finish that sentence. Why do you think Jesus received mercy? Paul goes on, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, basically him saying as the worst dude, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you catch what he's saying? God showed me mercy so that everybody else could look at my story and go, I cannot believe Jesus is that patient and loving. That's what we're doing right now. Isn't that cool? Jesus is amazing. Amen? Next, Paul is seized by Christ, then he's received by the church. And this is huge. When Jesus wanted to bring the eunuch home last week, what did he do? 
he grabs Philip, who's in the church. And what happens after Jesus lays siege to Paul's soul? He grabs Ananias, this random dude. Ananias is this random Christian in Damascus, and the Lord calls him by name and tells him, here's what I want you to do. There's this guy named Saul who I'm working on right now, and you've got to go pray for him and heal him. And what's Ananias' response? Heck no. That dude's crazy. I've heard about him. He's a bull. He's arrogant. That dude's insane. And Jesus says, no, he's my instrument. And I love that he adds, and I want to show him how much he must suffer for my name, which we'll talk about in a second. And then comes one of the most moving scenes in all of Acts. This is one of those things that it's easy to just read right by if you don't actually catch what's happening, okay? Paul is waiting, fully blind, in the house of some random Christian guy in Damascus. He's weak. He's fasted for three days. He's humiliated, right? He's embarrassed. He's probably very guilty. His cultural power position is gone. He's at the mercy of the people he's been violently persecuting. Think about that for a second. And there Paul is, and he's forced to wait. I have this picture in my mind. Sometimes when my boys are in trouble, one of them is like waiting for me in a room when I get home to go have a conversation with. That's kind of how I picture Paul. Do you know how embarrassed and weak he must be at this point? Can you imagine what Ananias is feeling when he's walking over to the house? He's walking over to this guy who's apparently blind. Yeah, terrified, fear. How about boiling anger? This dude just participated in Stephen's death. So he's literally participated in the death of his friends, and he's walking over to his house to pray for him. Try to put yourself in that for a second, and then turn to verse 17 in Acts. You guys there? Oh, man. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, come on. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias walks in, sees Paul blind in the corner, probably takes a deep breath, and then puts his hands on him and calls him brother. The reception and the warmth and the love of the church in the story is just as significant as his interaction with Jesus. I hope you see that. What would Paul have done if there were no Christians and there was no church? Right? You cannot exit something, whether it's a culture or a lifestyle, if you do not have a clear somewhere to enter, ready to re That's just a fundamental truth. The church cannot call people out of darkness if it's not ready to receive them when they leave. Amen? This is one of the great roles of the church you find in the book of Acts that's just popping off the page to me uh, that I think Luke is making so clear. The role of the church is being there to receive people that God is working in, right? I think this is so timely for us. Our vision is a community coming home to Jesus in his church. Uh, that has been what we felt like God has given our community from day one, and we've watched that just flower over time. But I'm more just positive than ever even walking through our church and studying Acts, that a huge part of what God has called us to do in Madison is to build a spiritual home 
that is ready for people when God moves in them and for us to receive them. It's like we are getting the beds ready and the rooms ready, the place at the table ready, so that one day when God starts bringing more people home, working in their life, just like he's been doing in the eunuch's life and in Paul's, where they're ready to take them in. Show them the place at the table. Lay hands on them. Pray for them. Pray for healing. Love them. That's what Philip did for the eunuch. That's what Ananias does for Paul. And the next story is of a guy named Cornelius who's converted, and that's what Peter does for him. There's always somebody there that Jesus, that Jesus grabs in the church to receive them. I love it. That's what we're doing. This is such an awesome picture of our church plant. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, we're a newer church. We've been a church for like, I don't know, how many months since November and October. Um, but this is what we're building. We're building a house. We're building a place for people to enter into that God is moving in. You're there so that one day Jesus can tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, pray for that guy. I'm laying siege on his soul and he needs some help. That's your job. Oh, that we might have more and more of those opportunities. Don't you want to have more of those opportunities? Don't you long to be involved in that? I do. Lastly, I just want us to, to briefly peek at uh, Paul's, how, he, how his story ended, okay? Um, so here's my last two blanks for you. First blank, Paul, after his conversion, great loss, great loss, greater gain is the second blank. So great loss, greater gain. What happened to Paul after his conversion? All his worst fears came true. He lost everything. Reputation, career, social capital, place in society, gone. The persecution machine that he helped build flipped on him. What you find later is he starts preaching just because he has to. I know Jesus is the Messiah. And what do people do? Jews try to start killing him. Exactly the same thing that he was a part of. I think maybe more than anybody else besides Jesus, I think Paul suffered more. Did you hear the Second Corinthians passage that Robert read? It's almost comical. It's so insane. Uh, Paul suffered. Jesus says when he talks to Ananias, there's a guy, Saul, you've got to go pray for him. I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my sake. Let me just read Second Corinthians again to you real quick. But what anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking like a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Yeah, I'm one too. Are they the offspring of Abraham? Yep. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm speaking like a madman. I love how he's like, I know that's an insane thing to say, okay? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. You would think he could stop there, but he, he goes on. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, and then I love his just danger list right here. Danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own brothers. Sorry, own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. He can't go anywhere and not be a danger. 
Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. I love that he adds that. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Does that sound like the cocky guy from before? No. Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul's completely flipped. He used to be so violent and so cocky, and now he's saying, you know what I'm most proud of? How weak I am. Because it shows how powerful Jesus is. The, the images used for Paul beforehand were images of bulls and trampling bulls. One of the images used for Paul, how he relates to the churches after his conversion, is like a nursing mother. Is how affectionate he was for his people and so patient with them. That is the polar opposite of a raging bull, is a nursing mother. His ambition is, is turned towards the gospel. He suffers everything, but God uses it to transform him into a new person. And even though he suffered great, his gain was greater. He lost all that stuff, but he gained even more. So I want to finish by just reading the rest of Philippians 3 here where he talks about this. And if there's anything in your life that you're currently being nagged on, if you have goats, it's always going to be a tension of you counting the costs, like Jesus says. What will I lose? What is Jesus calling me to? That would mean this. But then you're always weighing that to the prize of Jesus. Jesus says you lose your life to find it, right? So listen to this, and I hope, I hope you can take this into your own heart as you're thinking about whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, Okay? He starts the same way. If anybody else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you believe the old Saul is saying this? Isn't that amazing? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.